Tour is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace and it's the perfect app for travel. I was recently traveling overseas for seven weeks in multiple cities. Turo made it so easy to find the type of car that I needed in each city, including various things like a car seat, snow tires, and a lot of space. I live in SF Austin and Sydney, and I use their cars wherever I am and when I'm traveling. I don't have a car in SF and Austin, and we just use Turo. The booking process is so convenient, and the hosts are awesome. Go to Turo.com and download the app today. Sendar is the OG startup accounting firm in Australia catering for all stages of your business's life. If you're busy running your startup, you don't have time to do your own books and forecast. Instead, fully outsource your finance function, giving you time and resources back to focus on what you do best, which is growing your business. For a free one-hour consultation about your business's growth plans and finance needs, head to sendar.com. That's S-C-E-N-D-A-R.com. Okay, three, two, one. Hey, I'm Cheryl. I'm Maxine. This is First Check, part of Day One, the network dedicated to founders, operators, and investors. If you want to be a better early stage investor, this is the show for you. So TLDR, if you don't want to suck at investing, listen up. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we have Jesse, who is one of my favorite investors in the world, who also happens to be at Afterwork Ventures, uh, where I'm also an LP, full disclosure. So really excited to have her here today. One of the things I love about Jesse is that, you know, every time I open my LinkedIn or my Twitter, <laughs> I get, if it's Twitter, it tends to be something I laugh out loud at. <laughs> if it's LinkedIn, it's like, I'm going to learn something today. And I'm probably going to be impressed that she has spoken up about this thing. And like slightly nervous because she has the balls that I just simply do not. And I get nervous on her behalf that like, how can she say this? It's so impressive. It's so impressive. I think we want to jump into like, how did this happen for you? And, you know, how can some of us pick up just a little bit of that extra bravery that you have? Firstly, that's very kind, um, Cheryl. And I'm glad I provide that intermittent entertainment for you. I think there's probably two ways to answer this. First is how do I, as an individual, kind of have the cojones, as they say, to be bold and um, wade into certain conversations? And then what is the role of building a personal brand as a small fund? So coming at it from a challenger brand angle and where kind of having share of voice, but by being somebody who's willing to kind of be a lightning rod for certain kinds of conversations can actually be aligned to a fund strategy. So the kind of reason behind the rhyme, as you will. Ah, there's reason behind what you do. (laughs) Yeah. I also want to celebrate, we are now two from two, cojones. Yes. Have been mentioned on two from two episodes. Maybe we should make this a rule. <laughs> Maybe we should like require cojones are mentioned on every single episode we do yes. from here on out. <laughs> yeah, it can be one of your like repeat questions, like how Patrick O'Shaughnessy always asks, what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? It can be like, I love that. What's the big cojones moment you've had that you're most proud of? <laughs> Yes. yes. Okay. Thank you, Jesse. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Yes. We're going to have a little bit of Jesse in our podcast from now on. <laughs> Love that. So where do my cojones come from? I've been reflecting on this and I think the most honest answer I can give is that I was just really deeply loved by my parents as a child. Wow. Love that. And they sometimes listen to my podcasts. <laughs> 
<laughs> Hello, Jesse's parents. <laughs> this one. Yeah. Um, but I think they just always thought the world of me and thought that I could do anything. And I think that really instilled in me a very unshakable sense of self-worth um, from early on in my life. So that even as there's slings and arrows along the way, I think I've never been particularly insecure. I've never felt like an imposter or like I didn't deserve to have a seat at the table. And I think I've always um, felt that I am well-intentioned and come from a place of self-awareness and reflection um, such that I can kind of back myself in to, to kind of be led by my intuition to make some calls. And, you know, when people say, oh, how do you have the confidence that, you know, you have the right to be heard? And it's like, because my mum told me I did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, that just really is what's at the bottom of it. So that is such an interesting angle, right? I think that is such an interesting question that you are implicitly being asked, which is, why do you think you have the right to be heard? Like, why are we even asking that question? Yeah. Yeah. How, how, what is it like for you, Maxine? Because you're also somebody who, like, isn't afraid to, you know, stand out for what you believe in. Where does it come from for you? I honestly think it is, like, the same in that my mum told me I had the right to be heard. I'm not sure that I have the same level of bravery that you do, to be honest. I, I think you and I have talked about this a lot, right? Like, there are definitely some moments where I dip my toes in and then, like, Ooh. <laughs> freak out that, that water's too cold um but I do <laughs> I do I think it is a fundamental belief that on some topics I feel like I have the right to be heard and I think you phrasing it like that was just true Jesse form just like <laughs> crystallized the inside of like why are we even asking that question like why are we asking the question that you have the right to be heard you have the right to be heard because you have an opinion on it and people want to hear your opinion you can always share your opinion if people don't want to hear it. Great. But that doesn't mean you don't have the right to share it. Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, why are we asking others that? Like, why are we asking that question of other people when the reality is that hmm. anyone who wants to play in this space, who has a vested interest, should be able to voice their opinion, whether it's agreed with or not. And, like, let's champion that rather than ask. Yeah. I think, and this takes me to the second part of the point, that people do perceive that there is a lot of downside mm. to being the person who sticks their head above the parapet. Um, and that, you know, if you're a lightning rod for a conversation, you can also get burnt to a crisp, right? <laughs> I think for me that there is certainly guardrails I've put around how I do that. Um, because I acknowledge I'm not just a kind of agent, I'm also a principal, I also represent the fund that I work for. Um, but I think that there is a way to, as a small fund, that, you know, the point of departure is that no one has heard of you. Um, you're not a preferred investor for anyone. You are just money. And, um, you know, if you're quick money, that's good. If you're not money that's suspicious in any way, that's good. But how do you actually uh, mean something to someone so that people have an active reason to want you to be on their cap table because it says something about them as a company or because you're the kind of person who they want to associate themselves with and who they want to work with. And I think that when you're coming from nothing, you can take a lot of risks, um, right? And I think that's why you see challenger brands like Who Gives a Crap, for example, take a lot of risk in the early days um, with the founder, Simon, sitting on a toilet for 48 hours um, 
you know, uh, to, to kind of get a crowd raise campaign away. Um, and, you know, people would be like, oh, that's so unprofessional. It's so crude. You know, he's like got his pants down. He can't, he's not a CEO, but he really had nothing to lose because he wasn't really the CEO of a large company at that point anyway, um, but a lot to gain from um, being, you know, at the center point of a conversation um, from, being noteworthy from starting a conversation about, you know, equality of access to um, hygiene and water. And, um, and that brand has obviously gone on a really good trajectory. So I think that as a challenger brand, um, you kind of can't also be an also ran because if you're coming in into an industry where there are brands that are very established and in VC, that looks like, you know, the big three funds who, which have been around for over 10 years and have a very successful track record and have a big brand and marketing and community team, um, you kind of can't just be a smaller um, version of those. Um, you have to zig a little bit where others zag um, to be known as something and for, for there to be an active reason why might somebody someone might prefer a, a first check from a small fund like the ones that we run um, from one of the big three. So I think there is also a lot of upside um, to being known for, known for something <laughs> rather than nothing. I think that's the wonderful thing about our ecosystem. Yeah. I like it's such a, I mean, first of all, I love how intentional it is, right? I love that you are true to brand. You are really thoughtful in the way that you are challenging. It's not just kind of like throwing stones. You're just like, there is, there is a strategy behind it. And I think that um, the great thing about our ecosystem and being a great investor is that in theory, you have to be contrarian and right. Like the big returns come from having a different perspective. And I think that's what's interesting about your opinion definitely is that you very frequently are contrarian and prove out to be right. Like I think bravery is an element here, but you, even as a, like a small fund, a challenger brand in your framing, right? You can come in and see options and see opportunities that people don't see. And then, you know, be that in content, be that in, your observations of the market around you or the ecosystem around you or on particular companies and, and developing, making it clear that your brain is excellent in that way to bring you onto cap tables and to you know, support the founders that you work for, I think is really awesome to see. Yeah, thanks for saying that, Maxine. You know, it's too early to tell the results, um, but no, it's perfect. <laughs> that's true. We're all just hanging out here with like in, incomplete data. Like, yeah. Is this working? Yeah. <laughs> we were just talking about how like investing has one of the most brutal feedback cycles. So mm. we'll see, you know, what happens in the next five to ten years. But on that topic, like you know, one of the things that I think after work in particular and um, and yourself have been a champion for is that like e-commerce and consumer brand investing where we just don't see other investors, particularly in Australia, making some of those bets. Like does the content thing factor into that or is this just like a whole other um, category where you feel that there is contrarian thinking that can get better returns? Yeah, for sure. So I think how we think about brand for us is aligned with how we think that fantastic D2C companies might think about brand. And I think it's all about trying to have a larger share of voice than you have kind of share of wallet or in our case, something like funds under management or FTE or something like that. And I think that the way you can shortcut to that is when you have a really distinctive brand um, that comes to mean a whole bunch of things that are larger than itself. So 
I've recently written about um, the really great brands uh, that have gotten fantastic acquisition outcomes from global kind of PE funds, and that's Aesop, which got acquired for $3.7 billion by L'Oreal, and more recently Zimmerman, which fielded a $1.75 billion acquisition offer from Advent International, which is a very savvy global PE investor that has invested in things like Lululemon, and, and did so at the point in time where they really catapulted athleisure into the forefront as a category and, and rode its popularity to success. And, you know, what do we think that those really great brands have in common and where, how do they therefore command that pricing premium? I think that it comes from firstly having like a really distinctive product that is able to do its own marketing. Um, so Aesop's brown apothecary um, bottles, instantly recognizable, even some of its scents, like the botanical geranium uh, vibe. It's like you can almost recognize some scents as Aesop when you smell them on people's hands. And then Zimmerman, you know, it's the kind of frilly, chill, silk, really high quality, but also just like really playful, fun, um, feminine aesthetic. And when you have really distinctive products, those products that people are proud to put in their homes and wear, those products do their own marketing, right? Like real estate agents go and buy Aesop to put it into open homes to try and create an aspirational vibe. Aesop isn't like doing an affiliate partnership with real estate agents. They're going and spending $40 on hand soap to stage these homes. And then people are wearing Zimmerman to their you know, most special occasions, 21st graduations, galas and then they're taking lots of beautiful photos and posting them all over social media and because it's so distinctively recognizable as Zimmerman as well it just creates so many associations of Zimmerman with um, something that is playful um, but also something that is elevated and for special occasions and makes people feel really powerful and beautiful and all of that is kind of free for those brands. Like it's not performance marketing. It's not even buying billboards. It's just getting their users um, to generate the content that markets it. Um, and I think that perpetuates one, like pricing power. So the margins on these products are probably absolutely insane, right? Like $40 for hand soap, that's 10 times more than hand soap at the supermarket. And even that has got a pretty large margin because it's 99% water, right? And Zimmerman like $1,000 dresses, but you know, it'll be the thing that people see as an investment or um, a collector's item. So they're willing to really have that be their one big splurge for the year. And then two, it's, I guess, like we would maybe call it something like customer acquisition costs when you have so many free marketing channels because it's UGC driven, that can really reduce how much you have to spend on performance marketing and sales and promos and um, how much you have to pay retailers because it's not you begging DJs to put Zimmerman um, as part of their lineup. They need Zimmerman to anchor that store so that people come in. So I think for us that there is real like power to use the Hamilton Seven Powers framework in these really beautiful brands. And there is a kind of acquisition flywheel as well. And because of those two things, you can get gross margins that resemble something like SaaS. And you can also build moats around that in a way that, you know, somebody who just starts selling $40 hand soap um, in brown bottles isn't going to be able to do. 
Uh, so I think that there's more resemblance between these kinds of companies and our traditional VC companies than people might realize, but they are also really exceptional. They're not just another e-commerce company. They're certainly not a drop shipper, but I think that there is a path to be treaded to build a fantastic um, company in those, in those lanes. So interesting. When you are developing one of these theories or like developing one of these insights, what is your path to it? I.e. like talk us through the stages you go through between like first thought through to exploration, you know, and then what are the next steps from there through to, yeah, actually, I think this, this is right, even though most other people in the ecosystem or on this particular topic would disagree with me. How do you build conviction around something like this? Yeah, for sure. And like one, it is very much a team effort. So if I keep using the D2C example, there was an afterwork $1 million proof of concept fund that just made 30 investments and, um, you know, in some things that weren't traditionally venture backable, partially to learn, but also partially because we thought that there were really great founders at the helm of these companies, even though they weren't traditional kind of SaaS or marketplaces. And then we saw that there were a few companies where we'd invested in that fund that were D2C, but just started absolutely flying. Um, they were the companies that, you know, um, had the most consistent month-on-month growth, and they were also starting to be able to improve their gross margins over time. So Lyca is an example of that. Um, when we first invested, they were they had less than great company. Uh, less than 4,000 dogs subscribed, and they've kind of quintupled that and um, have served over two. 20 million meals, two dogs. And there were some others as well. And we were like, okay, what do these D2C companies have in common? And there were a few things. So one was like end-to-end control of the product and a manufacturing capability. So for example, Leica manufactures all of its own products. It's not third-party manufacturing and they can have very tight control over quality. Um, over uh, the like R&D process and and over costs. So as they scale up, they can more buy more and more of the same supplies against like key ingredients, for example, and negotiate con- um, negotiate the cost of those supplies down. And they can um, make their equipment better at, and better at producing those things. So that's you know very hard for a kind of fast follower to come in because there's there's a physical moat. There's these big warehouses, big equipment that they've gotten and customized um, all of these supply chain relationships, logistics relationships. So we were like, you know, that's as significant as, as software companies have. And then there was also a distinctive product. So a, a real kind of 10x between kibble that you might find in the supermarket and the kind of premium lightly cooked product that they sell. And you've also got a, initially a performance marketing flywheel that, that does work, right? So yeah, we saw that there's more, there's more to this um, than the mental models that other VCs might've put against these companies. So then we started to draw out where specifically it was really important to be excellent um, and then turn that into kind of our roadmap for investing in other DTC companies and the framework we put against the pitches that we see. It reminds me so much of the kind of rule of thumb as an investor that to be a really great investor, you have to see the deal, you then have to win the deal 
and then you have to learn from the deal yeah. or work the deal, you know? Yeah. And if you can get that flywheel happening over time, like you really start to get better information and build a more impactful portfolio than you otherwise might be able to do. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that jumps up to me there is you, the process that you went through and the kind of learning from the decisions that you've made and using those as learning points to then rebuild your decision-making framework. Yeah. How frequently are you doing that cycle for yourself and as a fund like how frequently are you adjusting your decision making models yeah i think it is one of the benefits of having a really large portfolio as a first-time fund manager so we have 25 positions in this kind of 20 million dollar after work fund so we get to track a lot of different companies and absolutely i think that um with every company there's a really salient set of learnings to be had about executing on the zero to one about what product market fit looks like for different kinds of companies um, about you know what are some acquisition methods that seem to really work and ones where it's like squeezing blood from a stone mm. yeah I think it's a really privileged position and one that we don't take for granted to have all of these different um, things to learn from. Curious what you think, Maxine, because you've got a significant portfolio as well between your fund and angel investments. Um, how do you think about kind of codifying the experiences you've been on and learning from them? Yeah, I think like decision-making diaries, people are probably sick to death of me talking about decision diaries, but I just, I just think that they are like the most powerful tool as you're learning to be an investor and as you continue to compound on your investing, capturing how you're making decisions and reflecting on what are the heuristics you're using. I mean, in your circumstance, Jesse, reflecting on your heuristics specifically for a thesis uh, or kind of the circumstances in which you're making an investment, the information you're collecting, kind of how you're deciding and adjusting those over time, I think are really, really impactful. I do also think just it adds a new lens to this like learning check question you know, for, especially for folks that are coming in and like wanting to start angel investing, you know, in whatever stage, you know, I'm constantly beating the drum to like spend a year, write as small a check as possible mm -hmm. and like reflect heavily on how you're making decisions and what you're learning over time. Because I do think the information value of time is so valuable in our industry. Right? And actually, I feel like we're seeing a whole bunch of folks do this at the moment. I'm seeing this kind of across the ecosystem where funds are leaning on that information value of time and not deploying early, right? You know, in my world, in the pre-seed world, there's lots of folks and Jesse, you and I share quite a few cap tables and I've seen this for firsthand. Actually, all three of us share a couple of cap tables. <laughs> party, yeah, cap table parties. Cap table party. Right, we have seen these a couple of times where the, definitely the big international funds and even some domestic funds moving out of that pre-seed, like early seed stage because they want the value of more information. Mm. And so they get to kind of make a mental decision. Like we want to back them or we don't want to back them, but we don't have to make a decision now. Mm. We can actually wait and collect more information over time and make that that bet, you know, into the future. Um, we obviously don't have that that opportunity as a fund because we just do pre-seed and we only write that first up check. Um, so we kind of have to live and die by our decisions, which makes it a little bit more high conviction. <laughs> so we really have to kind of get to conviction on that. But yeah, I think decision diaries being the like major level that I, I use and then reflecting on those decision diaries at an annual cadence. One thing that I am currently percolating and would love 
both Cheryl and Jesse, like your thoughts on this, because you both have big portfolios of companies that you've backed and then even bigger portfolios of companies that you've passed on. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you review your anti-portfolio and how do you think about your anti-portfolio? <laughs> yeah. And to be what I mean here, an anti-portfolio, just for those folks listening, is the companies that you considered and decided not to invest in. Go first, Cheryl. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess... If I think about what my anti-portfolio is, it is quite a lot because I probably see more than the average like angel investor, but it's not something that I like actively go out and like go through my anti-portfolio on a regular basis and like compare it to how they're doing now. Um, What typically happens is I will hear about a company doing really well who have just raised their like, you know, 100, 100 million series B and at X valuation, or sometimes that's not listed, but you can kind of infer from what they've raised. And then I'm like, hey, wait, I saw them um, and go back through my list and I will look at my notes. And and those, I think those are the ones that, that hurt the most because- Yeah, they're so painful. <laughs> it's so painful. <laughs> I talked to funds about this and this is, and maybe Jesse, I'm keen to hear your thoughts because when I talk to funds about this, funds are like, we would rather see the investment and have said no, mm. then have not seen it at all. True. And I'm kind of, I feel a little bit differently because I'm like, as an angel, I just know that there is no, op- like there's no way that I'm going to see everything. Like my goal in life isn't to see everything like a funds is. Um, I don't know if that's after work's um, goal or not, but I hear a lot of funds say like, we want to see everything. Um, whereas I just know that I simply can't. So when I see something and I say no to it, and then it becomes really like a very successful company that hurts me more than if it's like well I didn't get to see that and I never had an opportunity to invest in and I clearly obviously would have invested in it if had I had the opportunity so it's like <laughs> yeah. I can almost like give myself this out I don't know if that's the best approach to it but I can't say that I like actively go through my anti-portfolio um, but I do look at my notes if I see something and be like why did I say no that no to that and see if there's something there and sometimes it's like yeah, you know what? I still stand by that. And, you know, they could have just raised their hundred million. Doesn't mean they're going to have a good exit um, or that just wasn't for me. And you know what? As an angel, I wouldn't have been helpful anyway. So like maybe being on their cap table, just I would have been taking up dead space and that's not helpful for anyone. So it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Jesse, do you try to, I mean, do you guys hold yourself to the standard of wanting to see every single company in ANZ? Um, yes. I would say that like, Yep, substantial coverage is a goal. Um, and I think it's not necessarily always to review each opportunity in depth, but to have it referred to us or, you know, to have seen a pitch deck um, through our pitch portal. I think that Australia in particular, and with things slowing down a little bit now, it's not too hard to have something close to full coverage like maybe 80 percent coverage so i think um i think that yeah we've tried to build the infrastructure through the community um, and through our brand that that is um something we can try to work towards i think with anti-portfolios reflecting on some of the ones where we had a few meetings with them and either took them to ic and and didn't get over the line at ic or, or, you know, the deal didn't ultimately have conviction to trigger an IC. The N is small, but I do think that some examples are where we over-rotated on the business model already existing, or there being lots of um, kind of bodies in the idea maze, as they say. So different people have had different goes at the problem. Because mm. I think, and that's a bit of a top-down way of thinking about it, which is like, 
oh, you know, this has been a very salient problem for quite some time, but nobody really has cracked it. Um, or, or this business mo- like this product and business model exists elsewhere in the world in some form already. I think that that is where uh, execution or the founder having just like a really bright spark about how they're going to kind of capture lightning can be dif- difficult to evaluate in an in a investment process because it's not really real until it happens. Mm. And so I think that's something that really good investors probably get better and better at, which is just assessing where regardless of whether there's lots of bodies in the idea maze, um, that there might be some reason that somebody who comes at it with a slightly different point of view or with like a real spike in, I don't know, performance marketing or like in TikTok marketing or something like that could just take off. Um, Maybe an example is like Checkmate. Blackbird invested in that seed and it's recently raised a big series B from international investors. They're doing something that at first pass resembles honey, um, which is like it basically will populate a code um, for you when you check out and you'll get a discount. And it's like, oh, hasn't that kind of already been done? Honey exists. It got acquired by PayPal. It's not a huge standalone business. Haven't they got distribution? But I think what we may be underestimated about checkmate is um just how much cut through they were able were able to achieve um through resonating with people on new platforms like tiktok and getting that virality behind them and becoming the like most downloaded app in the app store in the u.s yeah yeah it's i think it's a really interesting question for us in like decision making as investors i love this concept of an idea maze Mm. and that there have been you know there's a lot of bodies in that idea maze already you know there's so many very high profile and then less high profile examples of where you look at an idea and it's not clear that it will break out relative to the other people in that group yeah. you know google obviously being the most obvious one of these there were so many search engines at the time that larry and sergey went to market for their seed round and you know it's really easy in hindsight to be like well google's the obvious bet but was it obvious at the time yeah. and um, especially from a kind of decision making perspective like the information that you consider to try to get to conviction like was it knowable mm. at the time that you made the call this is the challenge of, of investing super early and looking back on the your kind of anti-portfolio is constantly asking yourself the question like okay the reason that this won was that knowable at the time or was that yeah information that had to be collected somewhere further down the journey yeah I also on the like emotional pain of looking <laughs> at your anti-portfolio if you ever just need like a metaphysical pillow to cry on <laughs> uh Bessemer has a post about their anti-portfolio and it includes like airbnb instacart <laughs> etc so if you ever have a moment where you're like oh my goodness i miss this like amazing business just like look at Bessemer's anti-portfolio and then their overall returns and just place it under your head and shed a tear <laughs> into it and then move on yeah <laughs> perfect we should send that out to all of our uh, listeners just so they can have that as well right yeah Actually, maybe we should do that. That could be our first piece of merch. Yeah. Jesse, you were just nailing yeah. it today. Our first piece of merch <laughs> is like a best pillow. pillow. <laughs> it's a pillowcase. We should send people a pillowcase. Amazing. Yes. Done. <laughs> Would you invest in that as a data C company? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a bit of a niche market size, but we can grow it. Yeah. What if we spent 48 hours in bed with it? 
right. like the toilet yeah. paper. Yeah, that is like, I think that is a smaller niche. Oh. Added. Cheryl, I'm not sure how that becomes a larger market. Oh, if right. You, you cry into it. The theory being that your tears expand the market. Is that the, the direction? I don't know. The, who gives a crap guy spent 48 hours on the toilet? I could spend 48 hours in bed. Like, truth. <laughs> truth. Yeah. Yeah, it's much less lewd, that's for sure. Um, so on that thread, yeah, on that thread as you're thinking about ways of making decisions, especially in those moments where you're like looking at companies and trying to take in all of the disparate pieces of information, how do you think about kind of first impression, system one, decision making versus like considered thematic analytical decisions based on the information you can get at pre-seed and seed? I mean, they are really low information stages to be making calls. Yeah. How do you go about making those decisions and collecting the information you need and moving between those two systems? Because in my opinion, I think that they both have value at that stage. I totally agree that they both have value. So I think using the language of um, Kahneman systems, one is kind of the very intuition driven. Yeah. The first um, set of thoughts that you might have. And then systems two, systems two is almost the override where it's more logical, it's less emotional. And I do think that, you know, first impressions do count for a lot because we have a limited amount of time with founders, um, you know, a 30 minute, 45 minute call to make a judgment on whether you want to dig in and learn more or, you know, whether you think it's unlikely it'll be on the investment path and then you don't want to take up too much of the founder's time. But I do think that there's also something a little bit dangerous in over-indexing on that systems one first impressions thinking. So something that I've noticed in myself is that I can be very um, dazzled or impressed by founders who seem like they're really quick um, and you know, you'll throw something out there and they'll grasp the concept immediately or they'll grok the mental model that you're laying down immediately and they'll be able to speak to it in this very kind of articulate, polished way um, that betrays this kind of intellectual deafness and you're like, oh wow, you know, they're, they're like this powerhouse at processing information, like they could do anything. And then I think when you step back a little bit from the moment, you think, well, are there subsets of people who are just really familiar with the kind of reference that I'm throwing out there? Like, you know, are we part of a similar in-group where this is just like a common thing that we talk to one another about? Um, you know, it feels like you're throwing something out there and they auto-complete your search, but then it's like, do we just both have these cached thoughts that we're saying at each other and you just happen to have the right cookie stored in your mind to finish my sentence? Whereas somebody who's, you know, not part of this in-group or, you know, part of the group that is that is mine might come across as slower because they're oblivious um, to the, the kind of ways we talk to each other or the mental models that VCs love to ascribe to considering deals. And um, I think, you know, because of the experiences I've had as a person, that referent circle for me is, you know, people who've studied liberal arts degrees or law degrees. Um, it's, it's people who've spent time in consulting. It's people who've spent a lot of time kind of doing the navel gazing about our industry or our craft that other VCs do. And I think that what I've try to do is make sure that when I reflect on a meeting, um, I think about, oh, was I really blown away by them 
because of like a genuine, really well articulated insight? Or was I just, did I just get the impression that they had a lot of intellectual acuity because they all knew about all of the ideas and concepts that I'm, that I have on my mind. And that's something that I've learned to be more attuned to and not over index on. I'm so into that analogy, the like casing of my same mental (laughs) models and the cookies. So good. So good. Maybe perfect case in point. Sounds like all three of us have those same cookies stored. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, so good. I do. A good friend of mine actually shared this term with me. Um, Courtney from Sousa, this idea of VC catnip. Mm. Like there are these things that they come up in conversations and it's like VC catnip and you have to like stop yourself from jumping at it. Jumping at it. I think this is one of the really nerve wracking things about the absence of diversity in folks writing checks Mm -hmm. is that the like probably if the folks that are deploying capital are largely from similar cultural backgrounds and have had similar experiences it means that their their cookies look could look similar (laughs) which mean those founders that are referencing information that isn't in those cookies but is really valuable yes they don't get cut through totally the downside for the ecosystem i think that that is terrible because it stops us from being a true meritocracy it stops us from backing those ideas that have a huge opportunity behind them regardless of how they're communicated to this particular group of folks that are deploying capital but on the other side i also think it is a superpower for folks like us who don't look like the norm who haven't necessarily had the experience of the norm that our cookies might actually be slightly different so we can see opportunity in groups of people that are not the norm. How do you think about controlling your biases, thinking about backing people who don't look like you? And how do you try to make sure that you kind of see opportunity in all of the versions that it shows up for you? Yeah. So I think for me, my story about inclusion and exclusion is probably more informed by the fact that I migrated from China to New Zealand when I was seven than by being a female and by being a woman of color. So what my story was is that I, you know, landed in New Zealand having very little English and also having no understanding of the tacit norms and implicit knowledge that existed within, you know, a, a year three classroom. They're so powerful, those unwritten rules. Yeah, an anecdote that I've been thinking about um, recently is, you know, in year three, it was towards the end of the year and I got invited to my first birthday party. And I'd been hearing about other kids going to birthday parties all through the year and, you know, I, I was really excited when I got invited to my first one. I felt very grateful to be included. And I remember that there was this invite that was kind of handwritten by the mum on a card and it had, you know, the details where and when. And um, she wrote, P.S. Bring togs. So for those who don't know, togs is the kind of word in New Zealand for like a swimming costume, like swimmers. But we we didn't know what it was, my family and I. And this was like kind of pre-Google, I want to say. It was like the early 2000s. The good old days. Um, But basically we were like, okay, let's look it up in like our like paper, like, you know, tomb, Oxford Dictionary. Like, okay, togs, togs, couldn't find it. Um, We were like, what are togs? And then we were like, maybe it's toys. Is it like bring toys? But then like 
what what is the context here? Like bring a toy as a present, bring toys to play with, how many toys, <laughs> what kind of toys. And I remember just being just riddled with anxiety for a week, you know, thinking that I'd like blow my chance to find belonging at this kid's birthday party because I'd bring I'd bring the wrong thing. Oh, my heart breaks. I know. I just want to go and like tell <laughs> seven-year-old Jesse what a dog is. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of a microcosm. Little things like that came up uh, throughout my childhood. And I think now as an adult, the way that I reflect on inclusion is I, I don't want to deny that how you look and your culture is salient um, because it is. But I do think that there is this kind of almost invisible dimension, which is, do you possess the tacit knowledge? Do you possess the kind of shibblers, you know, the reference? Do you have access to kind of the in-jokes? In um, do you, you know, know how to dress for an occasion? That kind of thing um, that actually is more alienating to people um, than simply rocking up and feeling like they're in a visible minority. Um, so I think because that is my story, that is the way that I approach, you know, the question of diversity and inclusion, which is not necessarily to over-index on kind of differences in people's demographics, but really focus on creating the kind of environments where people don't feel alienated, where people feel there is an on-ramp to learning the tacit knowledge by making them more legible, by codifying them, um, like what it means to be part of this community, our values, how we do things, making that really legible to people, being the kind of hostess that does the hard work of, of including people who are kind of sitting by themselves at the side of the room. So I think that's how I live those values um, in my life. And yeah, I think that instead of like tracking um, demographics really closely, it's like, are you turning up in a way and are you putting on events that, that are able to feel accessible um, to people who, who don't identify with this in-group? I think that's so powerful. I think that raises some really interesting points around like how we can do better as investors to bring new people on board. Like if our whole goal for you know, this podcast, for example, is to open source some of those conversations that we get to have behind closed doors. Well, you know, how do we empower the next generation of angel investors who may not necessarily look like us or sound like us or um, behave like us? So, I mean, like, Jesse, I'd really love to just ask you, like, well, you know, if we want to make people feel less alienated coming into angel investing, like, what suggestions would you have? I mean, I think that you um, have done a huge amount here, Cheryl, like with your events, um, with creating on-ramps for people to start being angel investors through your syndicates and, you know, with kind of really reducing the barrier of being a sophisticated investor to start participating and deploying money there. Um, so I think that's all all fantastic. So I think, um, you know, I'm really keen to hear about how, how you guys think about it as well, because you have both done so much to create um, on-ramps and to include people who probably don't recognize themselves as angel investors or a part of this ecosystem. I also, I mean, I think the thing, uh, the reminder that we are indexing visual indications of diversity is just a heuristic we're using. We're making a whole bunch of assumptions that me presenting as a white woman, I had a certain set of experiences and I have a certain set of 
mental models and expectations, especially as like a middle-class white woman, um, like what I bring to interactions kind of, and my expectations of what, you know, how I would be thinking, et cetera. I think that the reminder that we are just making assumptions about how someone else shows up. Um, I think, I mean, I think that is such a wonderful reminder and my big one with, I think I'm aligned with you is that like information is one of the biggest barriers there. Mm. I can think of, so as you were telling that story of being, you know, third grade, Jesse trying to work out what a tog is, <laughs> right? I, that is an acute version of a very relatable experience I've had in so many different circumstances. You know, as you step into new environments and you're like, what in the actual F is this jargon word that yeah. this person is using yeah. that I don't understand and therefore like cannot apply any other information I have or intellect I have to it. And I think it's something that you have to be so careful of is indexing too much on knowledge as opposed to intellect, mm. right? Like knowing the right words, knowing the right frameworks, knowing the right people, etc. So I think I probably would think about it in two directions is like one, how can you change the informational asymmetry between people like the in-group and the not in-group yes, yep. and help them be able to engage in that and learn about it faster so that they can speak the language if they need to or at least understand the dynamics that are happening. And then the kind of inverse of that, of reminding the people in the in-group that they are actually in the in-group. Yes. <laughs> I think the reality is that for a lot of people that are in the in-group, you don't... They just don't think about it. You don't think about it. Like you forget no. that you are then there and i see this all the time kind of with my executive coaching hat on where ceos are just like out doing their thing you know they're just like building their companies having their conversations and they don't realize that they now have the label of ceo on them so they like are not getting the information that they need or in the same unfiltered way that they did when they were just you know a person building a product like now they are a ceo of a very successful company and they come with a whole bunch of information filters that they didn't kind of mm. totally grok pre previous to that or I think as investors, you have to be aware of that dynamic as well. Like the moment you have that title of investor mm. or you start working for one of those funds, information gets filtered to you in a certain way or you have a certain impact on people that might not be communicated to you and might not be entirely obvious to you in kind of first interactions. And so I think it's also like a, a awareness and a kind of backwards communication of like, oh, I now am being experienced in this way for a whole bunch of reasons that I don't have control over. And so what does that mean in terms of the way that I communicate, the way that I, you know, the actions that I take? And I think that has a bunch of different impacts. You know, it's a high leverage thing and a, you know, potentially destructive thing as well. Yeah. So I think about the, in, in that kind of, in that dichotomous way of like both inward looking and outward looking and how you kind of close that gap. Because I think it's a reality of what humans do, right? We do it in all circumstances. We construct those norms in a small group and it's just about being aware of the impact of those and how to access them. And also being aware of the fact that being a capital allocator um, gives you a degree of power and also casts a shadow, right? Because I think, you know, we all are just still the seven-year-old who didn't know what togs are. But like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Every day. Every day. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Other people perceive us as investors whose, you know, judgment, um, advice, opinion of them matters. Yeah. And I think it's something that 
requires a lot of awareness and growing to be like, oh, not only am I an agent, I'm, I'm also a principal. And that comes with a degree of responsibility to be like very meticulous with your words and um, how you treat people because you're amplified by the, the role that you have in the capital that you are the gatekeeper to. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you see founders uh, holding you in that regard because I don't feel like I have this power that yeah. they, you know, yeah. that it feels like I wield sometimes. Uh, and I think we need to be conscious of that as well. Like one of the most interesting um, situations I ran into is that I became, you know, a VP of a fund and a founder that I, you know, had spoken with regularly just as, you know, a, a casual peer, peer mentor kind of thing. Um, it doesn't talk to me as much anymore because they that fund has invested in that company and I lost that and for the longest time I could not work out why it probably took me three months longer than it should have but I realized oh because that information is now being filtered from me and I, I don't have access to that anymore because I I'm you know I'm taking on this this capital role nice. so I think as investors we need to be conscious that we have that perception placed on us whether we want it or not and how to either either foster that back or take responsibility for it and make sure that we're, uh, you know, putting ourselves in the right position to empower the founders in our lives to ideally filter the right things out or not filter as much out or filter, only filter what we don't want out. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think it's unavoidable. Yeah. Right. I think that is the right rational move for founders to filter information and because the, that information does have an impact yeah. to them, like a very material impact. And like the reminder that like the founders are the ones that are doing all the work here. Like they are the ones taking an all in bet on one company yeah. and committing, you know, 10 to 15 years of their lives to this journey. So I yeah. like fully understand like that is the right filtering <laughs> mechanism. I think it's just like understanding that as an investor, like you are collecting information that is now going through some kind of, of filter. Yeah. And that is a reality and that is the way it's going to be. And Jesse, I love this, like taking responsibility for the impact that you have because of the leverage point that you now sit at mm. as you progress up. And but, I mean, even from an angel investor all the way through, you know, I think anyone who's sitting in an investment role or even in like a support role at a fund, mm. they can also experience that, you know, that leverage impact. Yeah. There's one um, thing I have observed of you, Jesse, that you are so thoughtful and excellent at thinking about the impacts of your actions. And I would love to explore this. Like, do you think about the theory of change as you are applying it? Like, do you strategize and think about it? Or does it come naturally? Is it kind of a system one or system two thinking yeah. for you in the way that you think about theory of change? Yeah. So I think for me, the theory of change that I see both as being the most salient in our society is um, something that uh, some people call like the Overton window. So, um, or like what's acceptable discourse. So for those who are unfamiliar, it's kind of like saying that, you know, ideas sit on a spectrum and you can map it to a political spectrum or you can map it to like a broader kind of three-dimensional map of going from unthinkable to radical to acceptable to popular to policy. Um, and then you might go off the other end of the spectrum and kind of do it in reverse order. And the theory kind of says, you know, 
what politicians propose, what they campaign on, what ends up being legislated has far less to do with their personal preferences and who they are as a leader and far more to do with that where that Overton window sits. So, you know, politicians on both sides of the spectrum will probably only ever legislate on things that sit in that kind of, you know, at least acceptable, hopefully popular you know, sometimes bipartisan middle ground. And that's where the change occurs. That's what, that's what gets legislated. That's what gets investment, et cetera. And like, what is the role of discourse in moving that around, right? So I think, you know, you can see in the States that when Donald Trump made it socially acceptable or like, you know, as, you know, from his position as the candidate and then the the president um, saying the things that he did about, you know, um, keeping immigrants out, building the wall. He drastically moved the Overton window over to the side where those kinds of things um, that are whistleblowing for racism in some ways, it's like, it's the Southern border. It's not a border with Canada, right? Um, Like, that just, I think he dragged the Overton window over there. So even though some of the more hardcore policies might not have gotten implemented or gotten enough like bipartisan support, um, certainly what was possible to be legislated moved over to his point of view of the world. And I, I don't even want to map it to like a left or right wing thing because I don't think that there's necessarily any coherence between like a economically conservative ideology and like, you know, an anti-immigrant one. So I think, you know, in our corner of the world, in the VC ecosystem, there's also things that are currently kind of seen as, as radical or, or like unthinkable insofar as they're just not even part of the consideration space, right? And I think to create a systematic change that can kind of be scaled beyond just one person, I see it as being higher leverage to play some role in shifting, nudging, curling that Overton window over a space um, where you're really excited for some stuff to happen um, rather than necessarily being the single hard-charging person in the middle of that, especially if that what you're like really interested in changing currently sits in like a radical territory. You need to create like um, critical mass and gravitational pull towards it by shifting that broader window of discourse. So yeah, that's kind of my theory of change. Curious for, for what you guys' theories are. I mean, I would totally agree with you. The Overton window has been extremely informative in the way that I think about change, like of all forms, and also understanding like, yes, interesting how you bring something into the field of view as acceptable, but then also how it leaves the field of view of acceptable, mm. you know? Like watching for those indications that we're kind of on the back half of something, yeah. you know, no longer being acceptable. And I think there's like looking at both of the edges of the open window and looking for those behaviors. Yeah. It also frames the way that I think about the roles that you can play between like radical and how that might be experienced through to like progressive, through to consensus. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you hear people put out a radical idea. And I think this is what is so interesting in contrarian thinking, right? Is that like a lot of contrarian thinking is the radical element. They say it and you're like, that's crazy. Could work. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and you like quickly go through that, that process. And I think that's a big part of it um, as an angel investor. I wonder if we want to experiment with the co-owners question as a wrap up here. 
Real-time iteration, yeah. folks. You're hearing it real-time. <laughs> what is the biggest cojones thing that you've done? Yeah, what is the the moment where you have shown the most cojones? Yeah, I need to think about this one. Does any one of you two want to answer it first? Oof. I love this. Reverse questioning. I think this is, <laughs> like, I'm we... not sure this is how a podcast is supposed <laughs> to work, but I'm, I'm digging it as a style. I'm into it. Um, what is the biggest cojones moment? I mean, like, starting a company in general, I think, is is a huge cojones moment, like putting your own capital and time and putting a thesis out there that something is, I think this thing is going to work and I'm going to chase it down with all of my heart, all of my energy, all of my time, money and effort for the next five to 10 years. Like in general, I think that's probably one of the biggest cojones things you can do in life. Um, it's partly why I think we all back 100%. founders who chase that, but having really, really, like I've started companies before, but like Aussie Angels might most recent like that feels like the the real jump into the ocean two feet forward or head first actually um <laughs> moment where it's like I really needed to to have those cojones and 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 go for it so I think I want to say starting a company yeah 100 percent. I think for me the thing that actually requires bigger cojones than any individual maybe slightly impulsive action is um turning up like for the aftermath. <laughs> so like, I think you know, like, as you guys have kind of pointed out, um, it is a small ecosystem that we exist in. And to the extent that, you know, things get a bit pointed um, with any particular person, like that person's going to be at a 361 Angels event. <laughs> um, you know. Have you been burned by the lightning, Jesse? Um, yeah. Not, not hugely, I don't think. Um, but I think it's like, you have to play this kind of long-term game, mm. hopefully with long-term people. And I think that means you have to like kind of own your truth. You kind of can't just like drop a grenade and then like smoke bomb and be like, I'm never going to see you all again. Um, because it, in some ways that's kind of not courage, right? You're like, you know, you're just, you're running away. <laughs> but I think that it takes courage to live your truth in a way that maybe rub some people the wrong way or is maybe slightly pointed and make somebody feel that they are being challenged but then to be able to just like keep turning up in the same ecosystem as them on the same cap tables as them and still kind of have functioning relationships with people and not feel the the desire to kind of like flip table rage quit yeah takes cojones to kind of find equanimity <laughs> Amazing. Well, I cannot wait to continue to stay in the same ecosystem as you. Even if you flip a table here and there, <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it. I'm up for the table flipping and I'm very grateful for your time this Saturday morning and having a chat with us. Yeah, great. thank you guys. Great to be an early guest and really looking forward to where this podcast goes. I think you guys are fantastic um, voices and I look forward to, um, you know, having you in my ears on my walks and runs and that. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks, Jesse.